0: It is time once again for another edition of Cover Crop Strategies, the podcast brought to you by Verdesian Life Sciences. We have a lot to talk about today, but before we get started, let's thank our sponsor. They have this special message for you at Verdesian Life Sciences. We believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses, helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at VLSCI.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Buckle up, this week we're headed east of Green Bay to the shores of Lake Michigan, where Aaron Augustine runs a dairy farm with his brother Todd. They grow alfalfa, corn silage, and winter wheat, and have about 1,500 animals on site. The Augustines are all in on cover crops. They started slow with about 40 to 50 acres. Only took them about four years to expand that and really go all in. Aaron, along with his dad, Eddie, just built a 30-foot, 12-row inter to plant cover crops into corn, And guess what? As far as they know, it's the first interceder of its kind. For this installment of Cover Crop Strategies, Aaron tells us how the new interceder works, and he breaks down the key to getting a successful cover crop stand. So let's get the conversation started. Here's Aaron.
1: My name is Aaron Augustine. I farm here in partnership with my brother Todd. Um, We are east of Green Bay, Wisconsin, about 35 miles right on the shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, we farm about 1,500 acres. Uh, we are primarily dairy farm. Uh, we milk a 1,000 cows, have about, I would say, 1,400, 1,500 animals on site. And we um, grow a lot of alfalfa, corn silage, and winter wheat for our crop rotations. So, we, the last couple of years, have been trying to get into more no-till, but we do have dairy manure that we have to get out on land and try to work that in with our cover cropping system. But things have been working great the last couple of years with the help of the NRCS and some other officials on uh, figuring these systems out.
0: Now, what's it like working uh, with your brother? And I know you work closely with your dad as well. I mean, that that has to be a dream come true to just be able to work with family every day.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my brother Todd, uh, he's the cow guy here. He's in the barn, and he takes care of the cattle, and I take care of the crops and maintenance uh, down on the shop And So Todd and I joined a partnership about oh, it was about 15, 17 years ago. He took over the farm from our parents back in like 2000, 2001. I joined him in about 2005, 2006, and uh, at that time, we were only milking 60 cows, and we had a barn fire. We lost everything. So from that point moving forward we moved over to a green site and uh built the foreigner cow dairy and then in 2015 we more than doubled in size again to get to where we are today um our father still is involved in the operation he works for us um my dad is very hands-on when it comes to working in the shop and that kind of stuff so when it, when it came to building this interceder and other equipment he, he'll sit down and draw the stuff out and um, and bring into fruition uh he just it, it's amazing having him around to help with all this stuff
0: yeah he sounds like a really smart guy and we're going to jump into that interceder here in just a second but first i wanted to ask you when did you guys first start implementing conservation practices on your farm
1: so to look back i'm going to say it's been six years ago six five six seven years ago roughly i have to look at the exact number we're in a group of farmers here in the Dor Kiwani Demo Farms. It's a conservation group, um a group of farmers got together and works with the NRCS and USDA on implementing new practices on the land. So that's kind of when we got our first step into it, um we wanted to do something different. You know, we were the old mobile plows and chisel plows. We'd go every fall and turn that soil, and being this close to Lake Michigan, we just knew that we couldn't continue this practice. You know, heavy rains in spring, the the, the waterways and creeks would turn brown, and we wanted to try something else. And at that time, the NRCS was um, working with no-tilling and cover crops, and the cover cropping kind of caught my eye. So we started that. We started small. We only started with probably 30, 40, 50 acres the first year. And then we grew all those numbers the second year and third year. And I would say the fourth year we were all in. Um, last year in 2021, we planted 100% green. We didn't work any ground. This year in 2022, we had two high-speed disc. Um, I would say less than a third, maybe maybe a quarter of our acres um, just do that. Putting manure out this spring, we put some ruts in some of the fields. So we had to go up there and level them out. But our goal is here to get back to 100 percent no till and planting green we just we've seen the benefits in the last five to six years it's tremendous with raising organic matter in the soil and the soil health and water holding capacity and stuff like that
0: and what cover crop mixes do you use have you experimented with a lot of different species
1: so what we do is after corn silage is chopped off and fall We'll come back with about 25 to 30 pounds of cereal rye, and we'll no-till that in after the corn silage is off, third week of September. Um, we learned there in the beginning, five, six years ago, we were putting down 60 to 80 pounds, and that is just way too much to try to come back and plant green. So we backed those numbers down to 25 to 30 pounds. And with the dairy manure that we're putting out there, 25 to 30 pounds gets you a great catch. And in spring, you actually have a really nice mat out there to plant into. Um, We do not harvest any of our spring cover crop, being that we just have dairy animals here and some dry cows. All all of our heifers are down in Kansas, so we have no need for lower quality feed. So we leave that out on the soil, and I, I firmly believe that helps build soil health, too. And then, so that's our fall program. And then, like I said, moving into spring, we just, we no-till green, plant green right into those fields. And then after winter wheat, we have came back with a a combination of annual ryegrass, hairy vetch, clovers, red clover and crimson clover. This year, we're going to switch that up a little bit and just go with red clover, hairy vetch and a little bit of rye to... Help the hairy vetch crawl up, but our plan is to use the interseeder on that and grow our nitrogen for next year's corn crop. It's something new. Um, in the past, it was like I said, those, those clovers and a little bit of turnips after wheat, and that has worked great, you know. And then we go out there, we'll put a application manure on in fall, possibly two applications in fall, of about six thousand gallons to get our nutrient needs for a corn crop for the following year. Um. We do do interseeding, um, in the corn. That is just, uh, red clover, crimson clover, annual ryegrass. And that we plant down at about 15 to 18 pounds an acre. We try to get that interseeded in the corn when the corn is at V4, V5 right before it shades. Been doing that for a number of years. Um, we first started with broadcasting that on six years ago with, uh, air seeder through the, the co-op on one of their big haggies. Uh We didn't have much luck with that. We didn't have good seed-to-soil contact. So the following year, I had the local company that spreads my urea mix the inter-seeder, interseeding in with the urea. They went out and spread it, and then we had a 12 roll cultivator, and we cultivated it in. We got great seed-to-soil contact, great emergence, but I felt we were moving too much soil, And uh, when we came to chop and fall, we had a lot of ridges in those fields from the cultivator. So we only did that for a year or two and decided we didn't like that idea. Um, So from there, we worked uh, with Brown County. They had a six row interseeder, and we rented that for one or two seasons. But the problem with six rows is only 15 feet. You, You know, a good day you cover 80 acres. We just couldn't get the acres covered. So we, you know, we moved on to the interceder that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, and then one more cover crop that we plant after alfalfa. We've been pretty fortunate the last couple of years. We'll take third cutting off end of July, and then we'll terminate that alfalfa field. And we'll come in there with a multi-species cover crop, which is um, purple top turnips, radishes, annual rye grass, some sunflower, uh, a couple species of clovers, uh, hairy vetch. So I think there was eight or 10 species in that one, and we've had great results with that, and same thing with that. We'll put them around there twice in fall at 6,000 gallons an acre, and maybe once in spring, when all uh, oh, the other one in there was uh, just your annual, your cereal rye. So that pretty much covers the cover cropping, the seeding that we do throughout the year, and that that process has been working good for us. We have been kind of dabbling and switching around some seeds. Our goal is to try to grow a little more nitrogen this year uh, with nitrogen prices the way they are. But we were close with a local NRCS official, and we can you know, only try these different blends out and see how they work. Yeah,
0: you, you've used a lot of different species over the years, it sounds like. And you mentioned uh, seed-to-soil contact. Now, would you say that is one of the biggest keys to getting a good cover crop stand?
1: Yeah, I would say that's. That's 80% of the challenge right there is seed-to-soil contact, and then we have to have Mother Nature do her part and give us some rain um, once we get that stuff planted. It is kind of hard. I want to say two years ago when we seeded our cover crop end of July, beginning of August, after our alfalfa was terminated, that stuff didn't grow for a month, so that set us behind because we didn't have any rain there uh, and the little bit of manure that we did put over the top wasn't enough to help germinate it. 80% of it is seed-to-soil contact, and the other 20% is getting Mother Nature to get some of those rains, which at the end of July, beginning of August, and up here in northeast Wisconsin, we're, we're kind of dry at that time of year, but if we get that one shower of a half inch to an inch, those cover crops seem to just take right off.
0: To the conversation in just a second, but once again, let's thank our sponsor, Verdesian Life Sciences, and they have the special message for you. At Verdesian Life Sciences, we believe that supplying healthy water and soil for the next generation is just as important as supplying efficient nutrients for every crop farmers grow. For us, sustainability and profitability go hand in hand. That's why we call ourselves the Nutrient Use Efficiency People. We have dedicated ourselves to providing prescriptive nutrient use efficiency solutions that improve plant uptake and reduce fertilizer losses helping preserve the environment and make the most of your investment. Learn more at vlsci.com or talk to your ag retailer today about Verdesian products. Now, back to the podcast. Let's talk about this interceder that's been making a lot of news here in Wisconsin. So, so tell us about it and and how did it come about? I know your dad had a big hand, as you mentioned, in putting this thing together.
1: Yeah, so like I said, in the past, we were using a uh, 15-foot interseeder from interceder technologies that Brown County uh, Conservation Office owned, and it worked great. It really worked good, but we just could not cover the acres in a day that we wanted to cover. You know, we were, we were planting upwards of 200 acres with that thing. And, you know, like I said, that was a three day process and to try to hit that window right, um, making second crop at the time and you know, if we had some rains in there and then also in the corn shades and you don't get it done in time. So I had the idea of okay, we have this twelve row cultivator frame sitting here, a case international cultivator frame. Why can't we why can't we make an interceder with an air box on and blow it to the row units? We were looking for we looked for a year for some type of used grain drill to get row units off of, but we didn't have any luck finding the right contraption that we needed you know, for our distances down from the bar and stuff like that. So I reached out to um, Dawn Equipment. They make a dual seat row unit that is made for this interseeding. So I reached out to them. They were able to set me up with 36 of those row units and we mounted them to this toolbar Um, we we have three rows in between each 30 inch corn roll. So the challenge there was, was the weight on the toolbar. Our plan was to put the air seater on top of the toolbar with all the row units. But once, once we started building this thing, we realized we couldn't do that. So my father took some time and sat down and thought, how are we, how are we going to pull this air box? How are we going to, you know, bring this behind us? And at that time, he was looking around and he thought, you know, let's make some parallel linkage off of the back of the cultivator. And then we took uh, some parts off of a, an old swatter, a swivel axle, and made a frame to put the Salford air seeder on. And that worked great. So we have the swivel wheels out back, and then uh, it, pivot, it pivots in the center on one pin. And then that air seater, I think that thing was about 1,800 pounds empty. And it'll hold sixty bushels of seed. So we fill that up. That thing trails behind us on one hundred and twenty-inch spacing in between the corn rows, and uh, it, it's it's worked phenomenal. The the row units on the on the cultivator itself, we have like I said, we have those set in, and you know we we could cover. We were easily covering a hundred acres in a nine-hour day. You know we're out there at six and a half seven miles an hour when you get in the nice big square fields. So I have to give a lot of credit to my father for designing and coming up with all this stuff. And then the employees in the shop helping him assemble this machine. It was, you know, with supply chain issues, we ordered a lot of these parts in in January. We are supposed to have them in March. And we didn't see them until about the first or second week of June. So the the guys had about 120 hours in it in a week's time. Uh, between two and a half, three guys putting this machine together, and by the third week of June, we had it out the shop doors, doing testing on it in the field. Um, We have to come back this winter and do a couple little updates to it, nothing real major, just clean it up a little bit, but we covered over 400 acres with it this year, and it was pretty amazing how everything came together.
0: Yeah, sounds like it's working tremendously. There's a video of you guys uh, showing it off on YouTube. We actually have that on our website and our cover crop best of the web uh, article. So if anyone out there wants to see it in action, just head there and check out the video. But as far as you guys know too, this is the first ever 12 row interceder, correct?
1: As far as we know, um, I know I talked to a couple officials, regulatory officials last week from the NRCS and there has been a colour I guess there's one or two other ones out there that were kind of built but they didn't they were really heavy they didn't work overly well um, and that's the issue we ran into was the weight on the three-point hitch but by making the parallel linkage with the card out back that solved all those problems but as far as I know of I don't know I don't think there is any in production I, I don't I you know if there is I apologize I, you know we, to the companies out there but we've looked for them and we we couldn't really find anything that fit our needs so that's why we went about net designing and building our own.
0: How good did that feel after all those hours you put in to design it, put it together, and you've been searching for this kind of equipment that could work like this? How good did it feel to see it out there in action and see it really working for you guys?
1: Oh, it's a, a tremendous, tremendous sigh of relief. Um, we, knew, we knew the process of interceding work. We've been doing it for multiple years, and it worked great. But trying to design your own machine here or – I wouldn't say really design it. I mean, a lot of the parts are, you know, like I said, they're from Salford. They're from Dawn, Case IH, Toolbar. It's just assembling it together and getting it to work. Uh, the biggest thing was there is a very, very large investment in this machine. That was the scariest part, laying out all this capital out front and then trying to get it together and not knowing if you're going to be able to lift it, if it's going to be too heavy, if it's not going to trail Right. And then if you're going to have to go back to the drawing board, but I think my father hit it right on the first, the first path. Like I said, we have a little updates to do to it this winter, but nothing major at all. Just kind of clean up some of the hoses and make some brackets and stuff, to hold that kind of stuff. So, but I would say the scariest part was the, the investment we had in all the parts and getting them assembling, assembled and not knowing if it was going to work after it was assembled. Yeah, well,
0: the fact that you invested that much in, in an interceder shows how uh, beneficial the process of interceding is for your operation. Just tell us a little bit about interceding and, and the benefits that you've gotten from it over the years.
1: So, yeah, the, what we're seeing with interceding here is there's a, there's a couple benefits. Um, like I said, our farmers I mean, we literally farm land on the lake banks of Lake Michigan – And then, uh, you know, three, four miles inland. So I think some of the benefits we're seeing interseeding here with the grasses and the clovers is we're always a couple growing degree units cooler than if you go inland 10 miles. So we get a good catch on our interseeding, you know, that last week of June, first week of July. The interseeding kind of sits dormant until we harvest corn silage, which is normally the second week of September on an average year in Wisconsin here. When we harvest that corn silage, we already have that field planted. The sunlight hits that interseeding in a matter of 10 days, it goes from four inches tall to about 10 inches tall. It's there. The reason we wanted to do this interseeding is, we all know how labor is nowadays, trying to find labor. When we're chopping corn, we we have eight to 10 guys out there between pack tractors, trucks, uh, choppers, you name it. Some of yours, dump carts. We just don't have that last guy to sit in that no-till drill and get out there and start drilling cover crops, and it's crucial that you get those cover crops in right after the corn is harvested. So we feel that this alleviates some of that time constraint in fall if we can get out there end of June, beginning of July, when we're kind of looking for a little bit of work for the guys around the farm here. So I think this year we did about 250 acres of interseeding of our 700 acres of corn we grow and the plan is to keep upping that number and i don't know if it's going to happen next year but the goal is to eventually have all this corn interseeded and then when fall comes when we're done chopping corn there's very minimal cover cover crops to plant at that time um and then like i said when the sunlight hits that stuff it just blossoms and takes right off so when our manure guys come in fall we use a low disturbance manure application tool that kind of just a, a wavy coulter to put a little slit in the soil and we run that through these cover crops and it just gives those cover crops the food they need uh, to, to grow into the late fall so and it it helps hold that manure to the soil you know instead of leaching down and getting to the places we don't want we don't want it to get and
0: as you're interseeding what um what are the fertilizer applications look like do you do you apply fertilizer while you're interseeding or before or how does that work
1: you know, we talked about putting 28% tanks on the interseater and doing it at the same time, but after my father and I ran this machine this year, there's a lot going on with that 12-row interseater, so I think as of now, we're going to hold off on applying the 28% on the interseater. But, um, that may come in the future, you know, if we get a tractor on it this year. We didn't have a tractor on it with GPS, but if we can get a tractor on it with, GPS and let it steer itself, then maybe we'll look at putting wide drops on and doing 28. But normally we just come back with 100 pounds of urea and have the local uh, co op or female that we work with spread that out there. And then as we go through with the interceder, you know, you get a little bit of soil movement, cover some of that urea up.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation. It's really interesting to learn about how you put this interceder together. And those are all the questions I have for you. But before we let you go, anything else? You want our listeners to know just about either the interseeder or or how conservation practices and the usage of cover crops have impacted your farm over the years?
1: Well, I think this year, you know, when you talk about the impact of cover crops, I think a lot of farmers have seen it. When we can go out there in the spring and we have to do minimal tillage with $5 diesel fuel this spring, it was a huge savings. You know, we're not running those two passes, three passes over some of these fields with the field cultivators like we've done. The way they are today, too. We don't need those extra guys out there. Um, and I think conservation is number one, being that we're right along the, the banks of Lake Michigan here with a dairy farm. We have to do everything we can to protect water quality nowadays. You know, they, it's, farm practices are different than what they were 25 years ago, and we want to be part of that to help make sure we have a clean, renewable water resource moving into the future. So, and if anybody has any questions on the interseed or how we built it, or if they want to come see it, please reach out to myself or my father. We'd be more than willing to help you know, help other farmers out to get this worked into their, their um, equipment fleet, their rotation, if they want to get into interseeding. It's, it's growing in popularity in our area, too. I know we went out and did a little bit of custom work this year. I think we could have had a little more custom work if we could have had the machine done a little bit earlier, but you know we'll cross that bridge next year.
0: Great stuff there from Aaron. Really appreciate him joining us for this week's Cover Crop Strategies podcast. And before we go, let's thank our sponsor for Life Sciences. That will wrap things up. I'm your host, Noah Newman, Associate Editor. Thanks again for listening. We really appreciate it. And remember, until next time, for all things Cover Crops, head to CoverCropStrategies.com.